0: As Jesus taught, he said, Beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes, to be greeted with respect in the marketplaces, and to have the best seats in the synagogues and places of honor at banquets. They devour widows' houses, and for the sake of appearance, say long prayers. They will receive the greater condemnation. He sat down opposite the treasury and watched the crowd putting money into the treasury. Many rich people put in large sums, A poor widow came and put in two small copper coins, which are worth a penny. Then he called his disciples and said to them, Truly I tell you, this poor widow has put in more than all those who are contributing to the treasury, for all of them have contributed out of their abundance. But she, out of her poverty, has put in everything she had, all she had to live on. This is the word of the Lord." you know that we are now dealing with those passages in Mark's gospel that feature those last days, Jesus' last week. Just last Sunday, the passage immediately preceding this, a conversation between Jesus and one of the scribes, it began, having seen, having heard, having come To see this man, Jesus, the scribe was impressed and asked which commandment is greatest of them all. And Jesus quoted from the Torah, the scroll of Deuteronomy, what the Jews call the Shema. Hear, O Israel, the Lord, our God, He is one. You must have no other God but Him. You must love Him with all your heart, all your mind, all your soul, all your strength. The second is sort of like the first, he said. And he reached into another Torah scroll in his mind, that of Leviticus, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. And the scribe said, wow, you've answered really well. That's exactly right. And these two commandments, the scribe said, are more important than all burnt offerings and all sacrifices. And Jesus said, you are not far from the kingdom of God. And now, just in the next verse, he becomes very critical of certain scribes. Certain scribes. I want you to understand, though, that this is not about Jews versus Christians. In fact, rabbis of that same first century that Jesus lived and was teaching also condemned the practices that Jesus is here condemning. Some scribes took their work very seriously and did it well and other scribes made a mockery of their work around the temple. Jews have those who do not do all that Torah tells them, and Christians certainly have those who pretend to be one thing and live another kind of life entirely. So if you and I imagine this is all about somebody else and not about us, we miss the point. It is about us. Mark's writing it for us. For us Gentile Christians, this gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. So what's being said here for you and me? Number one, beware of any who somehow put themselves above the masses, who somehow imagine they were created for special privilege all the time, who do not take others seriously. Jesus talked about the poor the powerless, the voiceless. Do you see them, deal with them, treat them as if they are human beings, children of Almighty God, people for whom our Lord Jesus was willing to die? You remember the movie Driving Miss Daisy? Jessica Tandy, Morgan Freeman. It was outstandingly received on Broadway as a play before it was a movie, it won a Pulitzer Prize for Mr. Uri, and then those two made a movie of it and numerous Academy Awards, numerous nominations, including Picture of the Year. Jessica Tandy, Morgan Freeman, they were terrific. Well, will try Vanessa Redgrave and James Earl Jones. They're doing it on Broadway right now. Wouldn't you like to see that? Vanessa Redgrave, James Earl Jones. One of the reviewers, the one who writes for the Wall Street Journal, said, I don't believe Mr. Uri's play will ever be better done. This is as good as it gets. He said, I thought James Earl Jones has such a huge, big voice and such a presence. Vanessa will sort of be swept off the stage. Well, I was wrong, he said. She held her own marvelously well. It really is a masterpiece for both of them. you Remember the story? It's about a white woman living in Atlanta, Georgia in 1948, not long after World War II ended, 1948. She's 72 years old, and she has a wreck in her car, and her son's very concerned that the next time she has a wreck, it could be fatal for her or someone else, so... He decides she is not driving ever again, and he hires her a chauffeur. And this chauffeur is an African-American named Hoke in the play. So you have an older, white, wealthy woman, and you have a middle-aged black man in Atlanta, Georgia, in 1948. He has to come in the back door, of course, sit there with her staring at the back of his neck, She doesn't want him to drive her. She wants to drive herself, but her son has decreed this is what's going to happen. Now, Mama, get along with this the best you can. And the play covers highlights of the next 25 years. From the time she's 72 till she's 97. And from the time he's a middle-aged man till an older man himself. He never gives up his dignity ever. He always acts as if he knows he is a person of worth and she comes to see him as exactly that. It was a very difficult time, of course, from 1948 to 1973. She wants to go to a family reunion at one point in another state and he's to drive her. He stops to fuel the car with gas at one point, and a little farther down the road tells her that he needs to stop and go into the woods. And she said, why didn't you go back there? And he said, because there was no restroom for coloreds at that station, a world she'd never thought about, a world she'd never experienced. But guess what? They become friends. They become friends. In fact, in her 90s, she ends up in an assisted living center in Atlanta. And one day her son gets in touch with Hoke and said, my mother would never admit this, but she'd really love to see you. You're the best friend she's got. And he went to see her. And he sat down at the table. The son realized that these two wanted time just for the two of them, and he leaves the table, and they talk as friends. And finally, when she's having a little difficulty with her dessert, he gently takes a small piece of her pie and feeds it to her as they talk. Very different socioeconomic levels, certainly two different races, going through all that occurred in the civil rights movement of the 1960s and coming out on the other side as two of the best friends. Each honoring the other, each understanding and cherishing, as it were, the other's worth. Number two, beware of those who vault themselves over others. He had already talked about who's greater, the one who sits at the head table, the one who waits tables. We all know it's the one sitting at the head table, but I'm among you as one who waits on tables. And he's asking us to do the same. And here in the second point... He is saying, Beware of those who devour widows' houses. Twice, I've been through the whole Bible with my Sunday school class, every verse of every chapter. It took us nine years the first time, it took us almost 12 the second time. And I've read the Bible through a number of times since I've been an adult. I don't know how many times in the Hebrew Scriptures it says, Do not forget the widows, the orphans, and the strangers among you. More than any other, the widows and the orphans and the strangers, the widows, the orphans, and the strangers, are you treating well the widows, the orphans, and the strangers? And Jesus is still very aware of them. Those who mistreat, those who do not understand, One of the new pieces of legislation, regulation is that credit card companies now have to tell you every month that if you make only the required minimum payment and never buy anything else on this card, how long it would take you to pay it off. Do you realize that more than 80% of the American people cannot write the formula for simple interest? Can't write the formula. So, $15 a month, $20 a month, $25 a month for the next 13 years to pay off somebody's balance. And once that simple statement has been made on people's statements, they're finding that more and more people are paying more than the minimum because they can understand it. In my small hometown, I bought my first car when I was 18 and needed a way to get to college and to pastor two little Methodist churches. My mother and dad wanted me to learn how to do that, and they sent me to one of them, there were only two banks in town at the time, to one of the most respected bankers in town, and he wrote it all up for me. And the next month when I got my statement, I still owed the same amount, though I'd made a payment. And the next month I owed the same amount, though I'd made a payment. And the next month I owed the same amount, though I'd made a payment. And I went by the bank that Saturday morning and asked, what's going on? And they said, well, first you pay the interest. Nobody explained that to me. But I didn't forget I've never signed a note since then, including the house where we live, without asking, am I paying only the interest on the unpaid balance each month? Just the interest on the unpaid balance. Not your interest first, and then, only then, principal. You see, it's so easy to double-talk people who don't know, who don't always understand. Can keep people down by speaking a language, writing words, complicated sentences they really don't understand. At the post office in New York City right now, there's a, an exhibition of, of, of photographs coming out of the Great Depression. And I was interested when I first heard about this, I, I've seen some of the f- portraits republished in magazines and newspapers. And one of them in the Wall Street Journal was a picture taken of a sharecropper's daughter. 1934, Alabama. Ten years old, Lucille, a sharecropper's daughter. Because see, that's what my mother was, a sharecropper's daughter. Uh, They lived on a farm right on the edge of a farm, and they produced as much as they could, and they got to keep half of it, and the landowner took the other half. They kept having babies and babies and more babies because that was more hands in the field, more hands in the field, trying to make a living. Well, this year, Cropper's daughter was photographed by a fellow named Walker Evans, who became a very important photographer. He had been sent by the New Deal administration down to the South to take pictures, document how bad the Great Depression really was. And little Lucille got her picture made. Big straw hat dress, but pressed. She's standing against a building right behind her, rough-hewn lumber, rust leaching from the nail heads. Years later, somebody wondered, whatever happened to Lucille? And they went to Alabama to find out. She got married when she was 15. Her husband would get drunk and beat her. She finally had the courage to run away from him. She married again, not much better than the first. Had four little children. When she was 45, she drank a bottle of rat poison and killed herself. A sharecropper's daughter, who maybe never heard a word of encouragement, a word of acceptance one whom nobody ever showed a way out, a better way, a better way. Followers of our Lord Jesus are called to find that better way. Number three. Number three is Jesus sat down on the Temple Mount. It's not Mount Everest, but it is a hill where Solomon's Temple once stood, where there are two mosques today have to climb up this little hill to see the mosques, Jesus sat down there watching people putting their gifts into the treasury, and he saw a lot of wealthy people tossing in big sums of money. He's criticizing them. We need them. When this beautiful building was built, this congregation had only 1,600 members, Average attendance, 500 on a Sunday morning. They all could have sat in the balcony. Instead, they decided to dream bigger, build bigger, believe bigger. But it took people putting in lots of money, lots of money. They walked down Boston Avenue on Easter Sunday morning, 1929, up the North Steps, Easter Sunday, in their new church. And six months later, the stock market crashed, and many of those who had been generous givers suddenly had nothing. Roger Coffey was here at the early service this morning at 830. His grandmother and grandfather chaired the building committee. When the Great Depression came on, someone saw... Roger's grandfather standing across the street one day and said to him, Well, I bet you wish you had all your money back that you put in that church. He said, No, the money I put in that church is all I have left. Their home was where Veterans Park is today. They lost it, they lost their home. It takes people who dream big, think big, give big to make a church like this. It does. We need them very much. And yet, just two chapters before, Mark has told us about a rich young man who cannot give up what he has in order to follow Jesus. Just can't do it. He said, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. It's really tough for them to depend on the grace of God. Mary Lou Carney has written about her little granddaughter. She has a little granddaughter named Isabel, and she said, of course, I'd love to go over to their house. And Isabel is just the right age she loves for me to read to her. So she wants me to sit down, sit down, and she toddles over and gets her favorite books and brings them over to me and then crawls up in my lap. She opens one of her favorite books, and I start to read. But sometimes I only get to read three or four words, and she turns a page. And other times I read everything and she just sits there. She's suddenly become interested in some part of the picture that's painted there and she waits. So sometimes I'm trying to stop her from turning the page and sometimes I'm trying to hurry her up in turning the page and it's very clear she intends to turn the pages. And she said... You know, in my own life, when something really wonderful is happening, a vacation I've dreamed about for 25 years, time seems to move so quickly, I don't want it to pass, I've waited for this and now it's going so quickly, Our one plans and plans for Thanksgiving and everybody comes and so quickly it's over, a Christmas and boom, it's over, now it's It's time to clean up everything, get back to normal. And then there are times when we're sick or we're grieving. Time creeps along and we're saying, turn the page, turn the page, please turn the page. And I realize I don't get to turn the pages. It's hard for rich people to face that. They don't turn the pages this time in things that are of ultimate importance, there's only one who finally turns the pages. And to surrender to that one, willingly surrender to that one, is tough. Number four. He saw a widow woman toss two lepta, is the word, two lepta, into the treasury, copper coins, our translator says worth about a penny. The scholars I read this week said, do you notice how interesting it is that Jesus said two coins? She could have tossed one saved the other. Have you ever been caught in one of those moments? They pass the offering plate and you reach in your pocket and all you've got is a 20? And, and you think, gee, I wish I had two 10s. Or you got a ten and you wish you had two fives. Or you got only a five and you wish you had three ones. You see, she tossed in two coins when she didn't have to. She could have tossed in one coin and saved the other. She was all in. All in. And that's what Jesus is asking of you and me. No half-heartedness about this. You're all in or you're not in. Sell what you have. Come and follow me. He couldn't do it. And Mark is telling us this story right at the end of the gospel, but some were able to do it. Some were able to do it. Did you read Eric Konigsberg's column last week? He was writing about Halloween the year before. 2009 Halloween, he said. It was also World Series time. And my family are big baseball fans. The only problem is we root for the Mets, and they don't win often. So here again, they were not in the World Series. The Yankees and the Phillies were in the World Series last year. It came Halloween time, and our neighbors across the street were dishing it out He was a Yankee fan, and she was a Phillies fan. It came Halloween night. My wife and I dressed up our two. Their little boy's five, little girl's two. The wife said, well, it's my year to stay and give out candy here. You take the two of them, and he said, fine. And we started down the street. Our five-year-old had agreed to hold his little sister's hand, be sure she was all right, and I was walking along the sidewalk watching, be sure both of them were all right, and we got to our neighbor's house porch light on, but when they rang the doorbell, nobody came. They were not at home, but there on the porch, a nice big bowl of candy and a sign. Now, our five-year-old isn't reading really well, but I could hear him from standing back behind the two of them read, Yankees, fans, take two. Phillies fans, take three. (laughs) And I heard him say to his little sister, Oh, shoot, we don't get any. (laughs) And holding her hand, he led her to the next house. I wanted time to stand still. That our five-year-old was saying... I will not surrender for two pieces of Halloween candy or two copper coins.